Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, Yasha Levine, author of Surveillance Valley, who will tell us how the Internet has been about spying on us from the first. But first, a few words about that wild and crazy stock market. There's a longer version of this with pictures on my blog, lbo-news.com. Stock markets have more or less stabilized, at least for now. What does it all mean? There's no doubt that stocks have been due for a comeuppance for some time. They're very expensive. Since stocks represent claims and corporate profits, the conventional way to value them is by measuring their price against those underlying profits. The standard measure for that is the price-earnings, P.E. ratio, the price of a stock divided by corporate profits per share. Since the late 19th century, the P.E. ratio for the broad stock market has averaged 16. Since 1950, it's averaged 18. It's now 27. But P.E.s can be volatile. To adjust for that, Yale economist Robert Schiller has invented a longer-term measure, which adjusts profits for inflation and measures current prices against their 10-year trailing average. The century-plus average is 17. It's now 33. Schiller's P.E. now is higher today than any point in history, except for the climax of the late 1990s bubble. It was lower in 1929 than it is today. And what about those profits? Profits recovered far more quickly than wages after the Great Recession. In the first three years after that miserable event came to a formal close, corporate profits rose 55%. Meanwhile, what corporations paid their employees rose just 12%. Stocks became quite rationally exuberant, celebrating the rise in profits and its likely continuation. Over those three years, stocks rose 85%. The momentum in profit growth slowed, and that in wage and salaries picked up, but that didn't stop stocks from rising further surpassing the 2007 high in 2013, and then adding another 56% for the election of Trump. Stocks paused for a week or so after the election as traders sussed out what this unexpected turn of events might mean, but as soon as it became clear that whatever is idiosyncrasies, Trump meant tax cuts and deregulation, it was back to the races. Stocks added another 29% through January of this year to reach those extreme valuations I described earlier. Rational exuberance was succeeded by the less rational kind. Since Trump has been bragging for months about the stock market's strength, the sell-off is a marketing challenge for him. His administration weighed in with the customary reassurances, pronouncing the fundamentals of the economy strong. When people say the economy is strong, they mean that unemployment is low and we're adding 180,000 jobs a month. But millions have dropped out of the labor force. If the same share of the population were working now as at the 2006 pre-recession peak, 8.5 million more would be employed. This is the second-worst expansion for job growth out of 11 since the late 1940s. And by the most conventional measure of all, GDP growth, this is the slowest expansion in modern history. Another standard measure of the strength of an economy is the growth in productivity, the value of output per hour of labor. That's quite weak now, hovering close to zero. The politics of productivity are complicated. It can be boosted through speed-up and other forms of brutalizing labor. And productivity gains could all be captured by bosses in the form of higher profits and not by workers in the form of higher wages. But slow productivity growth puts a lid on income growth over time, and by the most orthodox of standards, it's a sign of a sickly loss of economic dynamism. A major reason productivity growth is so weak is that corporations have been stuffing their shareholders' pockets with cash rather than investing it in buildings and equipment. Since 2012, non-financial corporations have made net investments, net meaning after allowing for the depreciation of existing assets, of $2 trillion. Over the same period, they distributed $6 trillion to shareholders three times as much in the form of dividends, stock buybacks, and takeovers. It's as if the owning class has given up on the future and just wants to load up on private jets. 
The spark for the sell-off came from last Friday's monthly employment report, which showed a pickup of wage growth in January. This was read as a sign of inflationary pressures that would drive the Federal Reserve to push up interest rates more aggressively than they might have otherwise. Higher rates are generally bad for stock prices and make it more expensive to be a professional speculator operating on borrowed money. It's not only rising interest rates that are worrisome. To fight the 2008 financial crisis, the Fed and its central bank comrades around the world drove interest rates to record low levels and promised to keep them there for a long time. But in addition to that, they injected vast gobs of money into the financial system, a process called quantitative easing, QE. These purchases flooded the markets with money, which was supposed to stimulate the real economy by encouraging lending, but it didn't do much of that. It did, however, stimulate the financial markets mightily. Aside from providing money managers with more cash to play with, the Fed's guarantee that interest rates would stay very low sent investors searching for higher yields. Great news for risky assets like stock and more exotic things like Silicon Valley startups. This is all now going into reverse. The Fed is allowing the bonds it bought to mature, and it isn't buying new ones. It's not sucking money out of the markets, but it's not pumping in a trillion a year anymore either. And the likely trajectory for interest rates is modestly higher this year and beyond. Markets love easy money, as long as workers aren't getting a piece of the action. And they're always going to have to get used to harder money. The wage spike reported on Friday made it seem like money was going to get harder more quickly than they'd thought. How much does this matter? It's quite possible the market could recover. The sell-off was intensified by algorithm-driven trading that could turn around. But at some point, valuations will return to the mean or worse, and that is often not a calm process. Higher interest rates breed bear markets and eventually recessions. For most people, the direct immediate effects of the stock sell-off are minor. Though Trump kept urging people to check their 401ks for proof of his excellence, only half the population has a retirement account, and of those that hold one, its median value is about $60,000. But a stock market crash can do damage if it's deep enough or if it's a symptom of problems in the broader credit system. The market tanked during the 2008 financial crisis, but the reason that we lost almost 9 million jobs during the recession was the implosion of the credit system. Banks wouldn't lend, and even solvent individuals and corporations didn't want to spend, much less borrow. The driving force of the crisis was the unwinding of the mortgage boom, made worse by all the clever financial products it spawned. Things don't seem so dire now. But what hasn't happened is coming up with a new model for the economy. With the Reagan years came a war on labor, the busting of unions, the repression of wages, the war on our meager welfare state, a war whose gains were consolidated in the Clinton years as the Democratic Party was turned into a pure business party. With household incomes under relentless pressure, people used credit cards and mortgages to fund the semblance of a middle-class standard of living. But the financial crisis busted that model apart. Household incomes are still under pressure, but money has been less easy for the middle and lower ranks than it has been for the upper. Slow growth and popular rage are the result. I don't think a rerun of the 2008 meltdown is in the cards. But whether you measure by conventional indicators like GDP and productivity growth or more humane ones like the capacity to deliver a decent and stable standard of living to people with less than six-figure incomes, this economy is anything but strong. Signs of wage increases should not be occasions for panic, but when the economy is organized around the needs of the top 10%, they are. Okay, and on to surveillance. With all the ludicrous obsessing about how the Russians may have affected a 2016 election with a handful of Facebook ads that almost no one saw, there's been less interest in the capacities of the likes of Facebook and Google to spy on and manipulate us in their own interests or those of the U.S. national security establishment. The Internet was created by the U.S. government as an instrument of surveillance, and it never shed that heritage when it was privatized. 
Even the apps people use to hide from prying eyes like Tor and Signal were created and funded by the U.S. government. Surveillance, as Yasha Levine says, is a feature, not a bug of the Internet. His book, Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet, is just out from Public Affairs Books. Early in the interview, Yasha refers to ARPA, the Defense Department's Advanced Research Projects Agency, founded in 1958 after the Soviet Union's launch of the Sputnik satellite. A D for defense was added to the name in 1996, so it's now known as DARPA. Much of what we think of as modern computing, databases, the graphic interface, the internet, speech recognition, hypertext, virtual reality, and even, as we'll hear, the dark web, was initially funded by ARPA and DARPA. Okay, now on to Yasha Levine. Well, let's go back to the history of the Internet. Uh, I guess we could go back to time immemorial if we felt like it, but a lot of your history starts in Vietnam. How did the Internet emerge out of the horrors of the Vietnam War? The Internet came out of the Vietnam War primarily because of counterinsurgency, right? So America at the time was a sort of global empire fighting a lot of different insurgencies uh, around the world, from Southeast Asia to uh, Latin America. And... um, you know, a lot of people in the military, in military circles back then, you know, they believed that you could not really fight a modern counterinsurgency campaign without leveraging um, some kind of computer information technology, technology that could allow you to deal with data about societies, deal with data about peasant movements and uprisings, and be able to process that data and share that data and intelligence with, uh, with different intelligence agencies and, and kind of isolate the threat. The Vietnam War was generating a lot of data about what was going on in this population. And the idea was to use that data somehow to isolate the threat and to manage that, that, that conflict much better. What kind of data are we talking about here? Data that's kind of routine that we think about now is, you know, data about political groups, data about uh, current events and, 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 and conflicts, uh, data about specific individuals, so dossiers. Um, Things like that, things that are just information about a society on, on kind of every possible level, going from the individual to bigger events like conflicts and, and war. Now, of course, aside from uh, covering the country in uh, napalm and Agent Orange, the U.S. also covered it with censors. What did they do with all that? ARPA in the 1960s became a counterinsurgency agency, right? It became the center of counterinsurgency research. And um, the Internet, of course, came out of ARPA, the first Internet. Technology was called the ARPANET, and the ARPANET then became the Internet that we all use today. In Vietnam, ARPA was involved in all sorts of uh, technology to, to, to make fighting in the jungles uh, more effective, right? It was developing sort of lighter machine guns. It was developing drone technology that could hover about, above, above the jungles and, and watch troop movements that were being uh, hidden in the canopies. And it was also developing wireless fences, right, that, it, that could be deployed in the jungle, and that could, would be triggered if there, were, if there were North Vietnamese troop movements in the jungle that could not be seen by eye from the, from the air. ARPA helped um, build uh, this digital fence, what they called bugging the battlefield. Uh, they'd had these uh, wireless sensors spread around the jungle, mostly in the Ho Chi, Minh, Ho Chi Minh Trail. And these sensors would be activated by either vibration, by sound, even by um, urine. So they had things that could actually detect urine. So if, you know, if there's a bunch of troops moving through the jungle and some, obviously some would have to pee. So they'd pee and the, and the sensor would pick that up and it would relay that signal wirelessly to a transmitter station. That transmitter station would relay it to a, 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 a kind of a central command center 
that would then say, oh, whoa, we got someone peeing in this sector of the jungle on, 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 the, Vietnamese, on the Vietnamese border. We got to go and deploy some bombs there. And so that, ARPA was involved in that, in that. And that technology, it was very ineffective, actually, because North Vietnamese would found, found, understood what was going on and they would trigger these sensors on purpose to, to, to call in raids over completely useless territory. All this technology didn't actually end up winning the war for the United States. No, no, of course not. Yes, exactly. But it was, it, it was then very quickly deployed in the U.S. Yeah, I was going to say they were quick to take that home then, right? Yeah, and so, you know, the, the sort of electronic border fences that, uh, that people still dream of putting up on the border, and in fact, like, there are some versions of that still uh, that, are, uh, that are in operation now, where it came from the Vietnam War. They were developed there first and then brought immediately back to the U.S., and they were also very ineffective at securing the border in America, you know, the Mexican-American border. But they were made a lot of money for a lot of military contractors. And so that's a, that's a, that's a good thing in its own right, I think. But do they also use some of this technology to uh, spy on Americans, right? Yeah. One thing that people don't understand is that surveillance on the Internet is not a, uh, a bug. It's a feature of the technology. Uh, surveillance was why it was developed by ARPA in the 1960s. And it was used to, to spy on Americans almost as soon as the ARPANET went online. So the ARPANET went online in 1969. It kind of went national in 1972. And at that point, it was Im immediately used to digitize and share am uh, amongst all the intelligence agencies surveillance files on millions of Americans, mostly anti-war protesters at the time and um, civil rights activists. The technology was built to facilitate surveillance, uh, not just, you know, of, of foreign countries, but of the domestic space as well here in America. Okay, and a lot of this was developed at universities, uh, which were, of course, politically hot during this period of time. So uh, there was a lot of protest against this at first, wasn't there? Oh, yeah. A lot of the anti-war protests, um, you know, of course, focused on, you know, on research, on military research being done at universities, right? And so, and what but again, what I think kind of uh, dropped down the memory hole is that a lot of those protests specifically targeted ARPA, and in many cases targeted programs that were connected to the ARPANET program that, of course, developed the internet. Um, and so people were protesting the ARPANET, you know, as early as 1969 because they saw it as a a tool of surveillance and social control. So there was a big, big protest at MIT in 1969, led by the uh, SDS. It was specifically about the ARPANET, I mean, the Internet. And so they were protesting the Internet in 1969, and they you know, had all these flyers that understood what this technology was and what, what it was going to do, and they explicitly called it out for being a technology of surveillance and social control. And then there was an NBC reporter in the mid-'70s, right, who uh, did uh, a series of uh, uh, reports on this evolving uh, spy network, right? Yes, in 1975, the NBC on Evening News aired several segments spanning three days actually looking at how the internet, back then they called it the ARPANET, was being used to surveil American citizens. And, uh, and so he kind of blew the story wide open, showing that the Pentagon and the CIA were using the ARPANET uh, and programs developed at MIT and Stanford and UCLA to compile dossiers on Americans and to share them uh, with the intelligence agencies and, uh, and the White House at the time. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, what was, what's interesting about that episode is that if, if you read any history of the Internet, uh, it just doesn't exist there. You can't find that, that episode. You can't, it, and, and it just kind of dropped completely down the, our collective memory hole. 
Now, the story I got was the Internet was invented to uh, basically have a communications capacity that would survive nuclear war. Is that true or not? That's certainly an aspect of it. Yeah, that's certainly an aspect of it. But if you go into the, if you go into the archives and if you go into the declassified records, that, that aspect, aspect of it is, is tiny compared to the counterinsurgency uh, dimension. One of the main things that the ARPANET was going to do or promised to do was modernize uh, the military's command and control system. So right, make it more effective, right? Uh, and, and to do that, it had to kind of develop modern computer technology and networking technology, make computers that are easy to use, that anyone could sit down and interact with it in a way that we interact with our computers today, right? So that program essentially invented and created the modern computer, the modern internet-connected computer. But the, uh, the forces, the reasons why that, that program was being funded was, be, was in large part because of counterinsurgency, because you couldn't fight insurgencies uh, by just dropping nukes on armies, right? You couldn't, you could, or deploying tanks. Uh, you ha, you, you're dealing with civilian populations and, you know, enemies embedded in civilian populations, right? And so you had to figure out a way to uh, isolate the problem portion of the population. It was believed that you, you needed to do that. To do that, you needed sophisticated computer tools like databases, right? You could, you could, you could sift through data. Uh, you could first collect the data on people and then you sift through it to find the problem, uh, the, the problem, uh, uh, and, and then, of course, isolate. The, the underlying reasons for the technology was counterinsurgency. And of course, if we go back into uh, the deep myths of history, uh, the computer itself was def- came out of like, a lot of World War II research uh, about targeting weapons. So the, the, the military and the computer, their histories are deeply intertwined. Yeah, I mean, co- computation is, is, has always been a, a kind of a function of war. But I think, you know, that it's, you know as, I, as I talk about in my book as well, it's also always tied to surveillance. This is one, one, one thing about the history of computers that I think has kind of dropped off the map. I mean, everyone knows that, of course, you know, computers are tied to war in some capacity, whether it's, you know, crunching numbers for, uh, for nuclear research, right? You know, encryption is a big one. But if you go back in the history of computing um, to, to, to what was essentially the first computer built uh, in the late uh, 19th century, which, which in turn became um, the basis of IBM and the, the, the punch card uh, machines, right? It was built to... Um, That's the, the, the Hollerith calculator, right? Yeah, the Hollerith tabulator. So the Hollerith tabulator, uh, which then became IBM and the, punch, and, and, you know, the ubiquitous punch cards that, that, that it stored the data on, um, came out of the U.S. Census. So the U.S. Census office needed, um, w- basically couldn't, c- couldn't calculate, couldn't count the numbers anymore. Uh, there, was, there, was, there was such a huge influx of Im- immigrants into America, and there was such a, a, a kind of a, a worry about their racial makeup. So each census got more and more and more uh, detailed and wanted more information about their immigrants' ethnicity and, uh, and things like that, that, that the census office simply couldn't deal with the numbers. And so they... they uh, in effect, contracted a young engineer and inventor to come up with a better way of counting people. And he came up with the, with the, the punch card and, and the punch card tabulator. And so, yeah, that was in effect the first computer. And it was tied very specifically to counting people and counting populations. Yeah. And you quote Hollerith, I believe, saying, uh, if, you know, if you want to count the number of Chinamen. <laughs> so it's, it was very much concerned about controlling potentially dangerous populations, or at least tabulating potentially dangerous populations. Yes, yes. I mean, this was the, the rise of the computer and the tabulator was very much uh, in parallel with the rise of, sort of eugenics and uh, the, the popular rise of eugenics in America. The, the idea that, we, you know, America had to protect itself from the, these hordes of immigrants that were going to 
um, dilute uh, America's uh, you know, superior genetic stock, that's when really uh, genealogical data began to sort of be foremost on the census and ethnic data. And so the, the, the tabulator was brought in to help count that and to help tabulate that, uh, that data. I'm speaking with Yasha Levine, author of Surveillance Valley from Public Affairs Books. Soon after the, uh, these revelations, the NBC reporter talking about this, the, the, these vast databases designed to uh, monitor American citizens, uh, a group of people like uh, Stuart Brand and folks like that were also making the computer kind of cool and um, imbuing it with the, the ethos of uh, the hippie counterculture, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, that was happening, and, and, and they were intertwined, you know? I mean, so um, a lot of the, some of the contractors who worked on the ARPA, ARPANET um, worked in the same, um, you know, think tank of the Stanford Research Institute that was developing chemical, chemical weapons um, for use in Vietnam, you know, were, were also hung out at communes and uh, went to Grateful Dead concerts and dropped acid and uh, smoked pot, you know, and then had uh, Tolkien posters on the, in, in their cubicles at, 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 at Stanford, you know, while drawing their salaries from the Pentagon, right, and, and developing this sort of counterinsurgency uh, computer technology. And so there was a lot of overlap between the sort of the hippie counterculture, right, and the sort of the, the, the world of military contractors that, that designed the early Internet. And people like Stuart Brand um, would, would kind of go on and, and become the, the, the sort of the, the public relations operation that would turn this military technology, right, into, into, into something that was revolutionary. He, he was a very central character in the story in helping to rebrand surveillance technology as technology of, of utopianism and, and sort of radical egalitarianism. And then uh, Brand, and then later his pals, who went on to fire, uh, found uh, Wired magazine like Rosetto and Kelly. Their official ideology was quite libertarian. At the same time, they were uh, uh, very intimately tied up with the U.S. government's surveillance and control apparatus. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, they just took that vision to its logical conclusion and, and really started cashing in. You know, Wired Magazine, I think its first issue, its cover story was uh, this uh, gushing profile of a tank um, virtual reality simula simulation game um, that was developed by DARPA, you know, sort of the, the agency formerly known as ARPA. And it was just this gushing profile of, of, of war simulation, right, that was being used to train um, people how to use tanks and how to fight a tank war. And it was it's, it, it wasn't critical. It was it was showed it showed this as sort of just a peek into the future of what was going to happen. You know, we were going to go into this virtual reality world where all the rules that we that came before, you know, would break down and there would be a totally new world, a utopian world. So they presented the military as a force that was creating a world that would make militaries obsolete. <laughs> so in a way, they were presenting it as the military was writing itself out of out of a job. Right. Funding itself out of a job. And they worked that contradiction all the way, you know, and and they sold it to people. And so, you know, today, when when you tell people that, hey, you know, the Pentagon is funding all this privacy technology, like the Tor project or uh, the Signal app, you know, they kind of fall back on this on the same arguments that that were being used by Stuart Brand and and Wired magazine that, you know, yes, sure, the military is funding this stuff, but the military doesn't really know what it's doing. What it's really doing is actually. Uh, destroying itself by creating these weapons. Yeah, because they, the state is so stupid. I, I remember um, interviewing Kelly when his 
new rules book came out. And then actually I used to get in these disputes with Rosetto on, on, on various uh, listservs. Uh, but they were both like, you know, like super Ayn Rand type libertarians uh, at the same time. You know, they were <laughs> so wrapped up with this side of the state, which is the least attractive side. It's not like the kind of state that educates people or pays their medical bills. It's the state that spies on them and controls Yeah, them. no. I mean, Rosetto was, uh, uh, I think he was a um, president of like the Republican Club at, at uh, Columbia, I think. And he, he camp, you know, he, he volunteered for Nixon's campaign. And, and he was a very hardcore libertarian uh, from, from his college days in the 60s. And so while, well, he, and so he was on the, on the right during sort of the, the counterculture. He, these guys are at their core, very right wing and, uh, and libertarian. And they don't seem to have, you know, they're libertarian, but they don't seem to have a problem with the military at all. In fact, they see it as a utopian, um, a force, of, force that can create a utopia. It's really telling. Which makes me think of a company that's always promised never to be evil, Google. The history you, you present of Google is not like your standard worshipful history of Google. Yeah, I mean, well, Google is just um, <clears throat> came out of Stanford, came out of Stanford Research Project. Uh, graduate research project that that was um, in, headed by Larry Page, the co-founder of Google, and you know Google was just one of many um, search engines that came out of a federal uh, research program um, that that uh, spanned many different universities. It was called the Digital Libraries Initiative, and this program uh, was a federal program um, funded by, uh, among other agencies, uh, the FBI and DARPA, um, and it aimed to um, create a kind of a new way of organizing information online. So the internet didn't have a centralized directory, right? It was this sort of chaotic, decentralized medium. Federal government wanted to promote research. I would figure out a kind of a new way of organizing something, right? And, and helping people find information on this totally chaotic system. And so that program actually spawned a couple of different search engines. And Google was one of those search engines, right? And uh, it uh, was just the one that became the most commercially successful for whatever reason. It came at the right time, was came, came out of the right place. Uh, you know, Stanford had the right kind of connections and, and it was, you know, it was very good. So, um, so Google also came out of DARPA funded research. So, you know, the same agency that funded the early um, sort of counterinsurgency technology and the ARPANET. Um, and, and, and from then on, you know, um, when you read uh, the descriptions of this di- the Digital Libraries Initiative, there's discussions about how um, this kind of technology that can help search things on the Internet is, has, you know, and has applications for law enforcement and for intelligence agencies because they're looking for ways to find stuff on the Internet just like everyone else is, right, uh, to, to carry out their investigations. And so almost as soon as Google uh, became a company and started you know, producing this commercial search technology, it started contracting out its search tech to the NSA, to the CIA, uh, and to just about every wing of the of of uh, our uh, of the Pentagon. And so, uh, going, I think the earliest contract that I could find was going back to 2003, and uh, that was for to the for the NSA. So Google installed search boxes in NS in these sort of Google search boxes that could that allowed the NSA to search its um, to search its data um, sort of internally. But also, Google knew from the first that uh, if you know what people search for, you know an awful lot about them, right? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, from the very beginning, even when they were on campus, um, their first research, uh, their, their, their main um, paper, a research paper that described the Google's search technology and methodology, they already understood that having a kind of a good search just that's 
um, sort of objectively good, you know, it's relevant, you get re relevant results, is not enough. I mean, you get much more better, you get much better results if you know the intention of the person who's searching, right? So if someone searches for underwear, you know, buy underwear, it makes sense to know if they are a man or a woman, right? Because then, it's, then you can show them the right kind of underwear that they might be interested in. And so already they were thinking about ways that they could uh, find out things about the intention of, of, the, of the person doing the searching and, 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 and so to customize the search results to their needs. And so they understood that the search is better for them, but at the, at the same time, if they, they knew that if you're watching what people are searching, right, you have a kind of this God's eye view of, um, of human society because people aren't aware that, you know, the search box that they're entering things into is being watched, that it, everything is being logged and recorded and analyzed, right? And so it's almost, it's as closest thing as you can get to a brain tap because people aren't censoring themselves when they search, when they search for things. And, and so w by watching a person's search stream, you could, you get inside their head. You know what they're thinking about. You know their, you know, you know, you know their deepest secrets, things that they don't tell even the people closest to them. And so they knew that from the very beginning. And then they introduced Gmail, which gave them a whole new portal into people's lives and consciousness. Oh yeah, no, it's exactly. It's uh, it's uh, it was just gave them another dimension uh, of information. And uh, now you could see not only what people are thinking about and interested in, but also who they're communicating with, what they're talking about, who they're who they're network of friends, what their network of friends is, what it's like, you know, you get all sorts of things with an email, uh, right, uh, with email sent to your email address, so you get your financial documents sent to you, get your bank statements, you get your doc, the doctor might send you your lab results, all sorts of things, so it opened up a whole new way of, of profiling people, right, and getting to know them, you know, Google will argue that it's to only to better customize their search results, right, so the, the better they know you, <laughs> the more relevant the search results and the more relevant the ads that they can show you, right? So that's what they say, but, but, but you know, as, as many have pointed out, this technology differs very little from what the NSA does or from what intelligence agencies do. It's just that this technology is done so they can sell you some, sell you some stuff, and it's, but there's no actually technical difference. But is that all that's done with it? I mean, how paranoid should we, we be about this? Since they have like information on billions of people, really, should we assume that Google has these profiles of us that uh, the NSA could easily pick up? Of course. I mean, whatever, the Google, whatever Google has, the NSA has. It's not without a question. The NSA gets it legally and illegally, right? <laughs> a co a, a sort of overtly, I mean, with Google's knowledge and covertly in the sense that it hacks Google as well. It gets, you know, the full data stream. As, as, as Edward Snowden's documents showed, right, there were multiple programs in play. There's the prison program, which was done with um, Google's uh, approval, right? And it was basically a kind of a, a tap on Google servers that allowed the NSA and the CIA to, to request sort of taps on, on, on individuals and their data. But then there was a covert program that Google didn't know about that the NSA uh, spliced into their, um, into their um, internal network, uh, the fiber optic cables that, that connected its internal network and just grabbed everything that was flowing through there. So whatever the Google has, the NSA has. And in fact, if you think about it, um, the NSA couldn't really function without Google, right? Because <clears throat> the NSA doesn't run its own email service, right? The NSA doesn't run its own social media platform. The, so the NSA doesn't have its own phones that people use, right? So it requires the private infrastructure that's built and run and operated by a company like Google to 
to carry out its surveillance, right? So, so the, the NSA surveillance apparatus depends on this private telecommunication system run by Google. That was part one of my interview with the journalist Yasha Levine, whose book Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet, has just been published by Public Affairs Books. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. This is a public service announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now entering the age of information. It's perfectly safe. If we all take a few basic precautions, may I make some observations? Axiom 1, for the world we've become, your reputation used to depend on what you concealed. Now it depends on what you reveal. The age of secretive mandarins who creep on hills of tact is dead We're all players now in the great game of fact instead So since you can't keep your cards to your chest I'd suggest you think a few moves ahead As one does when playing a game of chess Axiom 2 To make the world new Paranoia is simply a word for seeing things as they are, act as you wish to be seen to act, or leave for some other star. That was some of the Age of Information by Mumus, and that was 1997. And now part two of my interview with Yasha Levine, author of Surveillance Valley, just out from Public Affairs Books. In this part of the interview, we talk about the Tor browser without sufficiently identifying it. Tor is a browser that keeps you anonymous on the web, if you use it right, and if you're lucky. We've been talking about Google before the break, but let's not forget the other digital PMOF. Here's Yasha Levine. Well, and then, of course, there's uh, Facebook, which uh, what, what one-third of human adults belong uh, have an account on now. I, I guess uh, similar things there? Yeah, I mean, I, there's no difference. Uh, there's no difference at all. Yeah, I mean, I think the, we should be scared. I think we, we should be scared about um, the, the profiles that, 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 um, that these companies compile, have, the data and profiles that these companies have on us, because... You know, I mean, it, just think about it, right? So imagine it's not Google, but it's some other company. Imagine it's the Coke industry, it's Coke Industries, right? That that has that data on us, right? Imagine it's like Philip Morris or ExxonMobil. People would freak out if they if if, if Philip Morris or, or or Coke Industries had that much data on um, you know Americans, uh, because people realize people would realize uh, that this company is very politically active, right? It's not just a passive entity that just sort of does its job and nothing else. I mean, it's, it's, it's very much involved in influencing the political system and, uh, and, and trying to bend the political system to its will and to its profit. And part of that uh, bending is convincing you know, Americans to go along with it and convincing them in all sorts of ways. And so the more data you have on, uh, on people and, and Americans, the, the easier you, you, you can, you can uh, influence them right? uh, and, um, and influence the political system. But, you know, the Koch, the Koch brothers and uh, Philip Morris just aren't cool like Google. Though. No, exactly. So, I mean, Google we can trust because they, they, they say they're, they're good. Yeah. Well, in the face of all this, uh, and this is the kind of thing that uh, causes you to get uh, an awful lot of hate mail and worse, people uh, resort to encryption. Uh, and you, we were on the show a few months ago talking about this, but uh, there's a lot more about it uh, in, in the book. Tor uh, and Signal and all these things. So, and Edward Snowden helped make the, the Tor browser famous. Tell us about the Tor browser. When Edward Snowden arrived on the global, on the global stage, you know, it seemed like 
things are going to really change, you know, because he made people aware that there was so much surveillance happening on the internet and that private companies like Google and Facebook were very much involved in it. They were, they, they knew what was going on and they were, it, it, they were helping to create this surveillance machine and giving data to, to the NSA. And so at the time it seemed like something was going to change, you know, that there was going to be a, a movement that would start to maybe rein in some, some of the, some of the more, just outrageous surveillance practices of these of these internet giants, right? But but that didn't happen. Uh, what instead happened was Edward Snowden presented as as a solution something called the Tor the Tor project or Tor. Uh, it was uh, a kind of an anonymity system that 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 uh, promised to make you you anonymous online and to protect your data from companies like from from companies like Google or Facebook and from your um, ISPs. But this tool didn't really protect you from uh, from Silicon Valley surveillance, you know, because it only protected you if you didn't log in, if you didn't use anything, if you didn't use the internet at all, if you only, if you if you didn't log into Gmail, if you didn't log into Facebook, or you only used accounts that were sort of anonymous and throwaway accounts. As soon as you logged into your uh, Gmail account or into your Facebook account using Tor, Tor didn't matter anymore because Google knew who you were because you used your personal login, right? And but this was presented somehow, and people went along with it as a as a solution to surveillance. Now, of course, the tour was developed and continued to be funded by the U.S. government. Yeah, and that's the other side of it. Of course, was that not only did tour not protect you from uh, Google or Facebook, uh, it was also it didn't protect you from the NSA either, uh, and it didn't protect you from government surveillance because it was developed by the government and was and it's still funded by the government as this kind of multi-dimensional sort of uh, soft power weapon. And so after Edward Snowden, the privacy movement focused on a tool that was ineffective at protecting you from Silicon Valley and was ineffective at protecting you from the U.S. government. But why did the U.S. government fund this thing? Well, that's a long conversation. I mean, it's, there's multiple reasons. Primarily, uh, it's used as a soft power weapon against countries like China and Iran and now increasingly Russia. So uh, when the internet started going global, countries like China began to sort of wanted to regulate their domestic internet space, right? Uh, they wanted to be able to control um, what kind of foreign information came in. Specifically, you know, they wanted to keep out American sort of anti anti communist propaganda that was being beamed in through the internet uh, by um, by outfits like Radio Free Asia, and so they began to block certain websites. Back then, this was the early two thousands. You know, the Bush administration had a freak out. Condoleezza Rice, who was the Secretary of State, she um, convened, you know, an Internet Freedom Task Force that saw this China's attempt to regulate its own domestic Internet space as a kind of attack on, you know, free trade in, in the era of the Internet. And so the government began to sort of scramble around for tools that could thwart and prevent China from, you know, uh, controlling its, its digital border. And uh, one of those tools was the Tor Project. And that's what that's its kind of main function, and that's it's be, it's mainly being funded by the Broadcasting Board of Governors and the State Department, and it's being it's being directed at at sort of at at, at you know America's enemies who are trying to control their their digital borders and to try to like crowbar them open. Now, the Broadcasting Board of Governors is uh, a spinoff of the CIA that uh, ran Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, all that stuff for years. Uh, basically, a propaganda arm of the U.S. government. Uh, yeah, it's the yeah, it's the foreign broadcasting division. Yeah, so and it, in 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 the seventies, it 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 came out of these covert CIA projects that were in in, in Europe, and then in the seventies, they were brought into the light and sort of made official. 
and given sort of this umbrella organization that ran them. These, uh, and so, yes, that, and that eventually became the Broadcasting Board of Governors. So this alleged weapon against government surveillance was funded uh, and continued to be funded by the um, propaganda arm of the U.S. government. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it really, it, when you put it that bluntly, it really just makes your head spin. Uh, but now uh, Signal, uh, the, the, the encrypted messaging app, has a similar pedigree, doesn't it? Um, it's exactly the same pedigree. Signal does not make its finances public, so it's hard to know, but, but it's, it seems to be almost entirely funded by the Broadcasting Board of Governors. And again, the idea behind it is that it came out after um, Arab Spring. And the idea was that you want to give local sort of activists, foreign activists, right, a way to organize resistance and, and movements, right, uh, against, against regimes that America doesn't find too, uh, too favorable. Uh, and you want to give them tools to do that. But you want to also give these, uh, these activists tools that, you know, will hide them from security services of their countries. And so Signal kind of does that, right? Signal is a chat app that's... Uh, encrypts your messages and it's supposed to be extremely, you know, it's supposed to be unbreakable. And so the U.S. government funds it. And that's the tool that Snowden uh, tells people to use, you know, uh, to protect themselves online. So I'm speaking with Yasha Levine, author of Surveillance Valley from Public Affairs Books. I don't use signals. So I didn't know this, but you have to upload all your contact information, give them your phone number. And the thing uh, uses Amazon servers. Amazon servers are also used by the CIA. So this Seems, in the face of it, quite porous. Yeah, and I mean, exactly. And the, the most ridiculous thing about Signal is that because it communicates with a certain IP address and a certain uh, that's connected to an Amazon server, anyone who uses it, downloads it, and uses it on their phones immediately sends out like a big, you know, fl bright, flashing red bulb saying, like, "I'm using Signal. I have something to hide. You know, I am for whatever reason." And so. When Trump was just elected, there was a protests being organized during his inauguration, and and people were um, using Signal exclusively. So the so the activists were in D.C. and they were exclusively using Signal to organize. And so what that did was that it essentially tagged every single one of them. So if there's a huge crowd of people, right, and only the organizers who are there to sort of disrupt and to protest against the inauguration, they're they're outing themselves <laughs> to anyone who's who are watching the ice, you know, the, the traffic of uh, uh, in the area, and so it, it's like this thing. It's like this. Sure, it might encrypt your messages, right? But it does other things. It outs you as someone who's using this and who's who's trying to hide themselves, right? And it it, it outs you as someone uh, of interest. And um, and in the end, you know, I, I know that uh, Signal didn't even protect uh, these protesters because I know that some of the people that were arrested. Uh, in these protests, you know, the, the police got their phones and they were able to just unlock them, you know, crack the code on, on the phone and they were able to get all, read all their messages, even though they were encrypted, you know, while they were being sent to, to, to their comrades. Uh, once you have the physical phone and you unlock it, all the messages are there. So people, because they're not thinking about, you know, thinking about ways of sort of, uh, preventing other people to read, um, uh, their messages, they're, 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 they have a false sense of security and privacy. They're just writing things right out in the open, right? They're not using coded language or anything like that. And so the police just had the entire transcript of the, of the chat logs, you know, uh, in plain language. And so it didn't do anything to protect them. In fact, I think it probably could have doomed them. Yeah, it would make you reckless and complacent. 
Yeah, yeah. And so these tools are kind of ineffective. And, and in the end, you know, it's like when you promote, you know, encryption technology as, a poli- as part of a political movement, it's counterproductive because the whole, the whole point of a, of a political movement is to work together with people, right? And, it to, and, and work together out in the open. Uh, and, and, and um, but, you know, this sort of this crypto culture that's infected political thought is, 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 is trying to like herd us into these little crypto cubbies, you know, where we're all sitting in our fortified bunkers, you know, using our fortified um, phones to chat with each other, um, whereas we should be working together out collectively out in the open. And so it's this kind of strange thing where, um, you know, as Edward Snowden told uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, as uh, someone like his main suggestion was, you know, encrypt everything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's not really uh, the core of politics, I don't think. No, yeah, it's ex- exactly. It's it's kind of silly. Yeah. Be- before I, we get to a political coda, though, I, I also you have some smelly stuff in there about the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation. Oh well, which part? Their relations with the government and John Perry Barlow himself having consulted with intelligence agencies. Exactly. You know what I actually want to mention is that what was interesting. I didn't know about this, but I found out of you know while researching writing the book is that. You know, the EFF now today is against ISPs, right? It calls them sort of, you know, it's for net neutrality and it's against, against the, these internet service providers. It's against the telecoms, right? But it actually, if you go back and look at its history, it started out as a lobbyist for ISPs back in the early 90s when the first sort of ISPs were, were being spun off from by the federal government from the National Science Foundation network that became the internet. So it started out as an ISP lobbyist <laughs> in the 90s. Um, and by the, by the early 2000s, you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was helping um, usher in this sort of uh, Navy project uh, that developed the Tor project and was helping to usher it in into the private sector and to kind of give it and, and, and giving it uh, radical appeal and giving it uh, basically giving its blessing that this was, you know, very important technology and the EFF supports it. And the EFF is going to even fund it for a while, while, um, you know, Tor, the Tor project sort of gets on its feet. Well, yeah, this is uh, just another uh, version of the move where uh, that uh, Stuart Brand used. Like, you use uh, this sort of hip cover for something that's uh, fundamentally military. <laughs> it's exactly, it's exactly the same. It's the same. Yes, I mean, I, I draw parallels between um, Stuart Brand and uh, the Tor Project, and in fact, they use the exact and, and the EFF. It's like the same exact ideology. I mean, it's the same people, even uh, right that. Uh, but the ideology is exactly the same. It's like, yes, there's this military technology, but it, but it doesn't matter because the technology itself is so radical, so powerful, that even its military creators have no idea what they unleashed uh, and that they, this force that they unleashed is so democratic, so egalitarian, so amazing and wonderful that it's going to destroy the, the, the military. It's going to destroy power structures. It's going to topple monopolies. It's going to be just, it's going to create this one world uh, you know, a flat world where everyone is directly communicating with each other. There are no borders. It's direct democracy. You know, there are no big corporations because how could corporations withstand the, you know, the the startup, you know, the internet startup mentality that's going to just crush everything. It's just, and so it's less part, it's this, it's this utopian kind of fantasy land. You know, it's pretty funny, actually, if you think about it, but it's. But meanwhile, we've got, you know, Facebook and Google, which are effective monopolies in their Perspective businesses. Exactly. That's why it's funny because even, even as people are still promoting this idea of of, of uh, the internet as a as a radically egalitarian technology, right? That's gonna we it's exist it exists in 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 a, in a, in a economic and a political landscape that's has it hasn't 
you know, we haven't seen in over, over 100 years. The power, economic power and uh, political power has been so concentrated in these companies, it's, it's, it's unreal. Yet people still, still cling to this myth of the internet as utopian, uh, as uh, egalitarian, democratic. And, uh, and so I think it's time for us to get, get away from that, you know, because and kind of look up, look up at the, the real world that we live in. Yeah, and finally, you close the book with saying, you know, basically technology will not uh, be any kind of uh, political savior. Uh, for that, you need politics, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yes, it's uh, the Internet is a reflection of the culture uh, that that created it and that's sustaining it. Right? And so the, uh, the Internet is messed up and the Internet is dominated by spies and dominated by corporation because our society is dominated by, by those. And so if we want to change the Internet... Uh, and we, we want to make it more democratic and more egalitarian and, and make it work for, 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 for the people in some, in some capacity. We have to change our society. You know, we have to live in a society that does that, right? And so, sort of, uh, you know, people ask me a lot about, okay, so how do we, how do we change the internet? How do, we, how do we make it better? How do we take it away from these corporations? It's like, well, you can't, I don't think you can really start at the internet. The, the internet is a kind of as a, is, is, is a, is a symptom is of, a, of a larger problem. And, you, and um, it's definitely a part of it. It's about our political culture. We have to figure out how to, how to get together and change things. What's interesting to me is that we, we, it's hard to even imagine what a democratic internet would look like, right? Because at this point, you know, everything that we use is, is created to make money for Wall Street, right? First, it came out of the defense sector, but when it went into the private sector, it was being driven, the development of, of the technology that we use is being driven by profit. Um, and so, but it's really hard even to imagine what, you know, this technology would look like if it wasn't driven purely by profit. It was, if it was driven for, by some kind of public need or public benefit, right? And, and who would make those decisions and what would it even look like? I mean, what would Facebook look like if it wasn't driven by profit and, and ads and uh, addiction, you know? Well, when Mark Zuckerberg runs for president, then, <laughs> you know, we'll all be all right. <laughs> I mean, yes, I, I actually can't wait for that. That'll be, the, that'll be the funniest presidential campaign. That was Yasha Levine, author of Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet from Public Affairs Books. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a real oldie, Fingerprint File by the Rolling Stones. Tapping telephones, how quaint. Till next week, bye. <laughs>